The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Genesis chapter 24. This uh, chapter comes on the heels of uh, Sarah's death. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 23. And uh, comes on the heels of her death and kind of sandwiched in between the death of Sarah and also the death of Abraham, you find this story. And it's a very unique story uh, to uh, the accounts of Abraham where it's more of a narrative, it's more of a, a more detail in this story than, than other uh, ones we've seen so far. So it's uh, pretty powerful uh, in and of itself. So it's, uh, you know, her death, Sarah's death most likely gave Abraham kind of a, I don't know what you wanna call it, a push uh, to think about his own mortality and his need to get his 40-year-oldish son a wife. Uh, here in this culture, uh, you know, 30-something, get married, and even 40, it's not unheard of. But in that culture back then, you were most likely married in your teens. And so for Isaac to be waiting this long, you know, uh, it, it was one of those situations where it could have been used uh, to say, hey, this is coming along. I think it's, it's time now uh, to leave the nest. Uh, so uh, here it is. I don't know if some of you uh, are picturing that someday for your kid that you have that's 18 now, being in your house till he's 40. But uh, this is what's happening here. So through, throughout Abraham's story that we've been looking at, we have seen God's covenantal loyalty to his chosen one. We've seen God promise so many things. God has promised him to make great nation, to have many descendants and from a place that he didn't even know about God growing up. And you see this covenant lived out. And there's a word in Hebrews, uh, Hebrew that kind of helps us understand a little bit more about this covenant. It's pronounced something like hesed, I think I did it somewhat justice, but this word is a word, often you find these Hebrew words that can't be summed up in one English word. There's multiple words that have to be included for this one Hebrew word, and here we see all wrapped up in one, God's faithfulness, his kindness, his steadfast love, and his loyalty all wrapped up in this one single word. So today we'll dive into a story of God continuing to fulfill his promise to Abraham out of his hesed uh, love through his astounding providence. You see, various passages, when you come to them and you prepare them and get ready to talk about them, uh, various passages call for various uh, approaches to the scripture. And so for some of these Abraham uh, messages that I've been allowed and, and uh, enabled to uh, deliver, some of them are really difficult. Like, I don't remember this. I don't remember studying about this. I, I need to really look into this. And there's other passages that they really do speak for themselves. They tell a story and help us understand things. And so this is one of those passages. I picture it kind of like this uh, on my wedding day, way, way back in 1998, way back. On my wedding day, I picture my wife, she comes through the door of the church, and I see her in all her splendor, in all her beauty, and uh, she sent me this picture because she didn't want us to see her up close, and I wasn't going to embarrass her, so I, I, I went with it. But to see her from the front of the church looking to the back, there was no need for anyone to announce her presence 
to announce how amazingly beautiful she was and how radiant she was and to announce that I'm up here crying like a baby, like usual, and to announce that I'm a nervous wreck and, and you know, she's wearing this and she's got these earrings. There was no need for a commentator because it was just beauty. It was just a, an amazing, amazing event with no need for commentating. Now, I'm not saying we're just gonna read the passage and go home, although some of you would like that because your stomachs are already growling. But we will look at this in detail and really see what does this narrative have to say and what is it teaching us? It's a powerful, powerful story. Now, there is another slide I had to throw in there. She did send it to me. Uh, How many of you experienced this at, at your wedding day? Did you guys smush cake in each other's faces? This is so funny to me because the 8.15, I thought, oh, well, they're half asleep, so they don't even know what I'm saying. Uh, 9.30, I was like, I was expecting more hands. Like, for real, you can ask her. She told me in between services, I looked forward to doing this. It was a thing in Beaumont. It may not be a thing in Central Texas, and me being the brain that I have, I definitely look forward to this. As you can see, I'd apologize later for the bruise on her cheek, but... uh, (laughs) She got me good too, you just couldn't see it very well. That was very emphatic of the cake. Um, I even asked my daughters when we were looking at this picture, I said, hey, someday when you get married, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna be all polite and sweet and nice? No way! And I was like, I'm raising good girls, that's great. (laughs) We think about this, that this story, it speaks for itself. It has a beauty in it and just an amazing message. So let's get into it, Genesis chapter 24 First, in the first nine verses, we can see the covenant between Abraham and his servant. Verse one, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear uh, by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Verse five, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to the land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And we see here that this is Abraham's choice servant. This isn't just a random servant he picked. This is somebody who is like second in command. This is kind of like what you would picture Joseph in his relationship with Pharaoh where Joseph was really running the country in a way. And this man was his choice servant. He had taught him uh, his ways. He had taught him God's ways, which we'll see throughout this passage. It's kind of an interesting thing, the way the covenant was sealed. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, That was uh, common in the future, but not seen until now. Uh, I was gonna think about bringing Danny on the stage to show you how how that worked, but it'd be really awkward. Um, But it was interesting because that covenant and putting your hand under the thigh, without going into too much detail, it's it's dealing with the idea of circumcision. 
and dealing with the idea that this was a basis of the covenant between God and Abraham. And that was the way they sealed that covenant. That's the way they demonstrated that this was like a life and death covenant, a serious covenant. So Abraham obeyed God. He rejected the idol-worshiping Canaanites. He, He followed God's leading to say, hey, I don't want you part of these people. I want you to go here. He didn't want Isaac to leave because this is the land he had promised. This is where he had him go. And he didn't want him, there's lots of speculation, but he didn't want him leaving and maybe even for safety issues. But he sent this servant out to look for this wife. So Abraham's relationship with his servant, it kind of mirrors what God had done for him. God had said all these promises to Abraham and Abraham trusted in faith and he obeyed. And in the same sense, this kind of a mentor relationship, this servant you'll see is also one who trusted what his master said and believed it. And he had faith, not only in his master, but you'll see also he had faith in his master's God as well. It's kind of like when Jesus told the disciples, hey, go find this donkey. This donkey's gonna be tied up over here at this time of the day. You go find it. It'll be there. Take it. Just tell them it's okay. Jesus said it's okay. And they did it. And here it is. And it, it came to pass. And so it's kind of like Abraham telling his servant, go to this place and find a wife for my son. His faith was lived out and the servant followed his lead. It's a great example of the way that we can lead and follow God and trust in faith and say, I'm gonna trust you and follow you no matter what. And you know what? You don't even realize coming behind you are people following you. Your own kids, maybe friends, maybe someone you have chosen maybe to mentor or God's placed in your path. And you see your faith lived out and then they follow the lead. Verse 10 to 15, we see the character of the servant proving solid. This servant had such strong character. Look at verse 10. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts for his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women come out to draw water. Verse 12, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love. Notice that, that, that phrase there, steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men in the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So his servant, he was an an intelligent planner. He was asked to take this journey. Now, we need to understand it's similar to uh, when Abraham was asked to offer his son Isaac. When I read that when I was young, it was just like, all right, go up to this hill and and put him on an altar. But in that instance, it was a three-day journey to get where he was going. Now here, it's actually a thousand-mile journey he's asking this servant to go on. That would take three months. And the servant obeyed his master. But he passionately sought God's direction is an important thing to notice. He wasn't just blindly obeying. 
He also sought God's direction in a passionate way. Twice just in that passage alone, he says steadfast love of God. So he's seeking God. This unnamed servant is actually the first person described in scripture about seeking God at a critical juncture in time as well. Where it's this critical moment and he bows his knee to God. He's obviously mentored well by Abraham. Biblical scholar Nahum Sarna says, nothing is more characteristic of biblical man than a profound and pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday human affairs. Take in that statement. It's such a powerful statement to think about. Your character is defined by how you face what God does in your life and where he takes you and what he presents you with the struggles and the good times, the difficulties and the pain. But as we seek God and have a proper view of his providence, we see his hand in everything. It's really interesting about this is that, you know what? He's praying, right? He's knelt down praying. And while he's praying, Rebecca had already left her house. And this providence of God causes them to meet at just the right time so that before he even finishes praying, boom, there she is. And you really need to take this in and think about this. This wasn't something that happened the next day. This was a thousand miles, a three-month journey. And on that specific day, he prayed and Rebecca shows up. There could have been problems along the way, just like if we were going a thousand miles in our car, we might have a flat. I mean, a camel might have been acting up, you know? Maybe he got sick and he had to wait a day and they were delayed. There's all these things going on with 10 camels traveling a thousand miles. And yet they just so happen to arrive that day, at that time, and Rebecca walks up right at that moment. What a powerful picture of this providence. One of the side notes or side lessons we can learn here is that prayer does matter. And prayer makes a difference. It's not just, oh, well, God's gonna do what he's gonna do anyway. Who needs to pray? Prayer is a powerful tool that God has given us and it makes a powerful difference. I can see even in this audience the lives of people, of parents who have prayed for their kids and prayed for wisdom, prayed for guidance. Maybe some of you that have been through difficulty and struggles and things that are unimaginable, but through prayer, God has led you through it. For you college students here and young people here, prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference in your life. Prayer affects your whole existence. And to see that in the role of God's providence is important. When we think about God's providence, sometimes we think, well, how do I even know? This is God or just happened? One of the scriptures that I encourage all my youth to memorize and try to keep it in mind for myself in the front of my brain is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you want to memorize two verses in the whole Bible, these are, man, so powerful to memorize. I memorized it in King James, so I always started in King James. It's, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. 
I always kind of transition into other versions, but it says, it goes on to say, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So how do we know God's providence? It starts with us offering our bodies, ourselves, as sacrifices. We submit ourselves, just like one of our core values of sacrificial living. We submit ourselves to God. We surrender to God. And then, as we surrender our lives as physical acts of worship, then he starts to show us, hey, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I was there, I was there, I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna be over here, and you're gonna see me more clearly as you submit and offer yourself as a sacrifice. So now we get to the kind of the meat of the story in verse 16 where the servant connects with Rebecca. Verse 16 says, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up and the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So it's a pretty awesome story. For this woman, Rebecca, to offer this to this man, not only a drink of water, but also to, uh, to water all the camels, right, to give them drink, is a pretty big undertaking. Now remember, there were 10 camels in this story. And I'm no camel expert, so Google helped me understand that camels drink 25 gallons of water. 25 gallons of water when they're thirsty. And there are 10. It doesn't have to take a, a math major to figure this out. That's a lot of water. And you think about this well, and it wasn't like a well, maybe, I don't know, you grew up around, I don't know how many wells in Philadelphia, but... Uh, maybe you experience a well where you, you know, crank the rope and you know, let the bucket down and get the water out and it comes back up. Well, in the, in the scriptures here, it says that she went down to the well and a lot of people speculate that this was one of those springs and had steps going down to it. So you had your jar, you actually went down the stairs, got the spring, got the water out of the spring and brought it up. Well, she has a jar and it says jar singular. So I was trying to make this easier for her in my brain, like maybe she had two jars and you know, it was a little easier, but it says singular, her jar, and those jars most likely back then held about three gallons of water. So you got three gallons of water and there's 10 camels 
and they each drank 25. And if you look at that passage again, it says that they drank till they were done drinking. It wasn't like, all right, you get a sip, now get out of the way, let this other camel in, right? It was till they were done drinking. So it would have been about 80 to 100 trips for Rebecca, up and down, up and down, down and up, down and up, for her to fetch this water. Now some of you are thinking, this servant was a loser. He just watched her do all that. Now we have to understand the culture back then. It was different, okay? My, my wife would have been really mad at me if I just watched. But what he was doing as he watched, the scripture says, he was taking this all in and seeing, wow, this is what the Lord's provided. He was blown away by her beauty, but also by her servant's heart and her just willingness to help a stranger and the camels. Because that was a stipulation in the prayer. He said in his prayer, if you look at it, it wasn't, I'm praying that she offers me a drink because I'm really thirsty. It was offer me a drink and my 10, ten camels as well. So they play, you never heard camels playing a crucial role in the scripture, but they do here. So we see this trip, this, these trips up and down, up and down her servant's heart. And he gazed at her in silence. But Rebecca then reveals her heritage, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. So it's kind of confirmed there. Yeah, this is the one. This is it. And what does the servant do? Yes, I'm the man. I found her. Aren't I awesome? He gave me a job to do. He's going to give me riches more than I could ever imagine. Isn't this great? My task is complete. You look at the scripture, what he does is bow before God and worship. He worships his father. He says, you've provided this for me. And what does Rebecca do? This is kind of interesting as well. What does she do? She runs. As soon as she heard that he was part of Abraham's family, she bolted to her mom, which is again a culturally inappropriate thing to do. Like even the prodigal son, you look at that story and for the dad to run to his son was unheard of. And for this woman, it wasn't like, you know, maybe in this room where some of us are trying to stick to our New Year's resolutions and actually run a little bit, you know, and get in shape. It wasn't a cultural thing back then. For her, to, for them to include this, for the author to include this in the, in the text is important, that she ran, she was excited. She heard his name and she probably heard his name many times growing up. Think about Abraham leaving the family. He left everything. He didn't know about this God. God just called him and he went. And over time and the years and years, she probably had this story passed down of this man named Abraham and his faith. And so here she is hearing about him in person with his servant. And then if you go to 29 to 49, we're not gonna read it all because it is a retelling of the story. It's a, a situation where the servant communicates with the family but we do need to understand when the text repeats things, it's important. It might be, hey, just like when your parents repeat things to you, hey, I better pay attention. In this passage, it's important, this repetition. So it says that Laban, which is Rebecca's brother, ran out toward the man. That's always, that's an interesting thing. If you know about Laban in the future, Laban is the man who deceives Jacob. He's like, yeah, I'll offer you my daughter. Worked for me for seven years, this daughter. 
He works seven years and then he switches her up and, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you wanted that one? He can work seven more years. This is that Laban. So at first I thought when I read it, oh, this Laban is a protective brother. Oh, who's this stranger with my sister? But then I think maybe he saw all the gold on her arms and ran to meet her, right? Oh, maybe this guy can hook me up. So the hospitality, though, the family is amazing. They just welcome this servant in, welcome this stranger in. Obviously, Rebecca probably learned that from her family. The servant, he took this mission seriously. I don't know about you, but if I was on a thousand-mile journey and I showed up somewhere and they had a feast prepared for me over a three-month journey, you know what I'd be doing? When they said, let's eat, I would have been pushing people out of the way, you know, let me eat, I'm so hungry. These camels are killing me. But what does he do? He takes his mission seriously, says, no, I can't eat. I cannot eat until I tell you what my master has said, because this story will blow your mind. And so he gives this, in a way, it's like a sales pitch to the family. Hey, for real, God did this, he did this, he did this, he provided the camels, your daughter not only gave me drink, but he gave me, gave my camels water, all these things that took place and he shares over the next 20 verses what God had done. And this is how we know that he honored God in this and it wasn't him. If you read that passage later, you actually see that he glorifies God five different times. The servant does, as he's talking to the family. See, this family wasn't familiar with this God. They weren't really familiar with who God was at this time. And so for him to continue to point them to the true and living God was very important because they worshiped other gods. And so that was a crucial role this servant played. So we jump on down to verse 50. You got father, mother, brother, and Rebecca come to an agreement. Laban and Bethuel, they clearly observed this as a man of God on a mission from God. Look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother, See, even Laban got hooked up. And to her mother, costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Verse 55. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So they acknowledge the Lord's providence. It's interesting, you know, that they want her to wait ten days. There's a lot of speculation about that, but... We won't get into that. Maybe Laban was trying to work an angle, but we're not sure. But they give this promise of, or this, this blessing on her to possess the gates, and the idea was those gates were where judgment was laid out, but also those are what protected cities, and so 
People think that that was a, a blessing to show that she would rule with Isaac and that they would have the land that God promised them in these moments. It's also interesting though that they called Rebecca and asked her. Again, in culture back then, over and over again, we've seen in Abraham where the woman really wasn't mentioned much. The woman had more of a subversive role and here in scripture instead, they choose to highlight the fact that Rebecca was called by name and asked what her opinion was, which is really unheard of back then. And she says, I will. She had great faith just like Abraham. So they journey back, they got three month journey, right? A thousand miles back where she looks ahead to think about her husband. Is he gonna be, you know, I mean, they say she's beautiful, so I'm sure she's probably thinking, is he gonna look nice, you know? I mean, there's gotta be some human thing going on here. This, are we gonna be attracted to one another? But she's also thinking, I'm leaving my family. What have I done possibly? What am I doing, leaving them all? In verse 61 to 67, the story culminates in a beautiful God-ordained marriage. You see, she was God's choice. God chose her. It wasn't like other leaders who went off and did their own thing when it came to marriage, but God chose her. And for you that are young people in here, I wanna stress this, that, that marriage and who you marry, that's important. That sounds so trivial, but it's so true that God has, has called us to, to seek out people who love him, who are servants, who, who care about others, who are living the gospel out, and it's important for us to see what a great example of a future marriage, this, a future bride this, this woman was. And so she goes into Sarah's tent, which was crucial as well, signifying that she was taking the mantle of being the matriarch of the family as she entered Sarah's tent and began this marriage to Isaac. So as we wrap it up, we think about providence, God's gracious outworking of his purpose in Christ and his dealings with men. When I look back at my life, I see God's providence everywhere. And it's nothing in relation to me and how good I've been or because my dad's a pastor and somehow I got you know, magic dust on me that you know, things worked out. I've fumbled and made mistakes my whole life and I continue to do that. But still, God's providence is obvious. From being the fourth of four kids and being called, jokingly, the uh, seminary surprise, you know, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be here. I definitely surprised them, especially how I acted my whole life. But to meeting a girl in Virginia from Beaumont, me coming from Philadelphia, and we meet in Virginia and come together and get married. So even when I came here to, to work here at TBC, I worked with Dave and Casey way back. Right after I got married, I worked with them, and it was awesome working together, but I didn't keep in touch with them. You know, this is back in the days, not with the iPhone, it was like those Nokia phones where you had to hit a bunch of buttons to send one word, you know? It's like, oh man, it's C. I gotta go through A, B, and C just to get to that, right? And so I didn't really keep up with them much, but here's the crazy thing. I go on a, uh, a ski trip with my youth group from Humble. Just so happens, they're on a ski trip as well from Temple. We go to the same place at Winter Park and I see them in line 
at Winter Park for the lift. Hey, I hadn't seen them in years. And at that moment, we started talking about a, a, a position here at TBC that was coming open that I literally would never have known about. I wasn't keeping in touch with them. I didn't know much about this church or this town. But it's just God's providence, just laying it out. It's just crazy. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It does not mean that everything's gonna be great in your life, okay? That's not what he's saying. This is Paul writing, remember? For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those who he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. When we walk with a firm belief in God's providence, it changes the way we look at life. You college students, there aren't accidents as you follow God with all your heart. I see one of my buddies over there, Philip. I'm just locking in on him right now. He just got engaged. It wasn't an accident that he, he showed up. Was that, did you just get engaged? Sorry, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> Philip, you're about to get engaged. I'm speaking prophecy. So, uh, uh, is that a prophetic utterance? Do we believe in that? Uh, so you got Philip over here, met a wonderful woman. So the idea is this. God guides him, directs him, place your hand on him as we go. Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. I've, I've told this story about, uh, no, I won't do that, sorry. Let's keep moving. So <laughs> the idea is this, God's providence is everywhere. That God guides and he directs and he shows us where to go. As we, we think about just wrapping this up without Philip's engagement, Let's think about this. When I thought about this passage, I thought of about a man, Mr. Burton, a guy that I grew up in, my dad's church, a, a solid man of God, a man who uh, just loved others. He was a patient Sunday school teacher because he taught me. He's a caring man. When I got my tonsils out, he was the first to show up, the only one to show up on my doorstep with a milkshake in his hand to care for me, the pastor's kid, you know? And this man had a deep understanding of God's providence and his direction. A deep understanding of how God was guiding us. And he was this powerful, soulful singer. I think we have a picture up on the screen we can look at. It's a little grainy because it's old. But this man was such a strong man of God who walked with God in his providence. So I thought about his life and legacy. I could hear him in the room singing one of his favorite songs in times like these, an old hymn. It's a simple song, and the first line goes like this. In times like these, you need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. See, we live in uncertain times. There's a lot of things going on in our world, a lot of difficulty, a lot of fear. A lot of times fear replaces what we see as God's providence and we live out of fear instead of trusting in his hand, trusting in him as the anchor of our soul. We all have an anchor of our soul, whether we know it or not. We attach our anchor to something. Every person in this room are attaching our anchor to something. But without hope in Christ, we attempt to throw our anchor on any number of things this world claims to be solid. 
Time and time again, we're disappointed that that person, that thing, that experience didn't meet our expectations. But I'm here to encourage you to know that there is an anchor for your soul, an anchor for your soul. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted him as your savior, you can know that you have this anchor that no matter what you go through in life, no matter what difficulty you face, this anchor will be with you. The same God who led Abraham on such a long journey of faith, the same God who led his servant to Rebekah at just the right time, the same God who gave his one and only son for you can be your anchor today. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. Thankful that you are our anchor. Lord, for anybody in here that doesn't know you, hasn't trusted you, Lord, that they will know today that they can have you as their anchor for their soul. They will confess their sins and believe that you are king, that you are Lord, that they can know you as their anchor. Lord, this story gives us such a great picture of your providence. Help us as Christians to live that out, to trust in you, to give ourselves as living sacrifices and let that affect everyday decisions. We praise you for being with us today. Thank you for what you're gonna do this week. In your name we pray, amen.